Harriet Smith and welcome back to Dietitian Cafe where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. In this episode we'll be discussing the topic of working as a prison dietitian. I'm really excited to be joined by fellow registered dietitian Fran Allsop. Fran is a specialist dietitian who qualified in 2019. She's experienced in surgery, critical care and the nutritional management of hospital inpatients. Since January 2021, Fran has taken on a huge challenge of developing a dietetic service within the largest male prison in the UK, HMP Berwyn in North Wales. She now independently runs her own dietetic clinic within the prison, providing nutritional input and education for for men from all backgrounds with a huge range of complex needs. In this episode, Fran and I will chat about her experiences of working as an HM prison dietitian, We'll discuss how she found out about the role in the first place, as well as the highs and lows of working in such an environment. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, Fran, it's great to welcome you to the Dietitian Cafe. Thank you for having me. So I've been following your journey, Fran, on Instagram for a while. Um, Hopefully many of our listeners are are familiar with your your page on Instagram, which we'll link to in the show notes. which is the prison dietitian, in case anyone's wondering. But before we get stuck into your role as a prison dietitian, can you just tell us a bit more about um, how you got into dietetics in the first place? Yeah, um, so it was it was a long story, um, but in a nutshell, I think I knew I wanted to do this from about the age of 15, um, and I didn't get the grades to do it, so I had to go back and do a third year at college. Again, didn't get the grades, so it was all a bit of a push, um, and ended up doing a undergrad in human nutrition but I knew all along that actually my goal was always dietetics um funnily enough I was kind of introduced by to dietetics by my cousin who has been a qualified dietitian for about 15 years now so I think that's how I knew it was even a role to begin with um but I eventually got onto the postgrad program did my five years at the University of Chester and after all of that I'm, I'm finally here finally working and I've been doing it for now two years and I can't Two years today, actually, it was the 2nd of September 2019 that I started my first band five job. Um, and I've not looked back. And I think this is the career for the rest of my life. Well, congratulations on your work anniversary. Um, delighted to be with you to celebrate this occasion. It was such a day. <laughs> so I want to know what led to you transitioning from perhaps conventional clinical dietetics to a less conventional setting of working in a prison. How did you even hear about the job initially? Um, To be honest, I hadn't thought that this was going to be my career path to begin with. I heard about the job literally on NHS jobs. I get pings. I'm I'm registered within job adverts that come within 10 miles of my house. Conveniently, HMP Berwyn is eight miles from my house. So I got pinged one day to say there was this job opportunity. And I looked at it and I thought, um, that looks a bit weird. Why, why would anybody go for that? Started reading the blurb and thought, actually, that's completely for me. Maybe this is what I've been missing out on all my life. Um, it was more as well, you know, when there's a job close to home and it's something that interesting, you can't not have a go, can you? Absolutely. And I think people listening to this will really admire how you just jumped on in there. Um, what were your initial reactions when you thought, when you came across this role for a dietitian in a prison, what did you think the job would entail? To be honest, I really wasn't sure. Um, and I think even when I started in the job, the staff expectations of me, they didn't really know what dietitians provided. Um, so when I first heard about the job and I kind of ummed and about it, I decided to just go for a tour. 
Um, and my current boss is actually the, the lady that toured me around on the hottest day of the year in um, 2020. <laughs> and we were being shown around the prison and just the, kind of the service availability. And we were talking about kind of the men's clinical needs. Um, and I realized it was going to be a massive variety. And that's kind of what I'd been missing out on. The acute care stuff I absolutely adore. And don't get me wrong, is still part and parcel of who I am as a dietitian. But the variety of every single man in that prison has different needs really drew me in. So people listening might be thinking, well, why does a prison need to recruit a dietitian specific to that um, setting? You mentioned that the men have quite varied and complex needs, but what led to them um, creating this job opportunity for a dietitian? Um, it's very rare for jobs to come up in prisons for dietitians. So to be honest, I don't know why they created it as a job. My gut feeling is that it saves them a lot of money having an in-house dietitian. Because if you think just to get a man out to an appointment in a prison, you have to go through multiple searches. You have to have officers. You have to have escorts. You know, you've got to have people detailed to that man for the whole day. And that's presuming as well that it runs smoothly. There might be a reason that they want to go for external appointments. For example, picking up dr drug parcels is quite a common one or risk of escape. So it makes sense to have that service provision within the prison walls so that it's clearly accessible for every single man that needs it. And I think it's definitely worked in their favour having me. Definitely. And, and I'll look forward to hearing more about how you've, you've come to help some of the um, the people within the prison in terms of your dietetic services. Just want to know a bit more about those first few days in your role when you turned up at your prison and you knew you were the new dietitian there. How did it feel? Um, it was probably the weirdest feeling ever to describe. Actually walking in and that surreal feeling of standing there being like, okay, I'm the only dietitian here. Oh my gosh, what have I let myself in for? But also then going, oh no, I'm in a prison. <laughs> Am I safe? What What are these guys in here for? You know, was this a terrible mistake? Have I, have I made the wrong choice? But I think really it's just nerves, isn't it? And that's when you start any new job. Is, is to be expected. I think I knew the challenge. And on my first day, I looked through a list of men that had been kind of tasked to me that I needed to triage. And some of the referrals were ridiculous. You know, like man doesn't like onions, needs to see you or uh, silly things. I had one even yesterday saying he doesn't like peas. Can you see him? And you think, wow, I've got a lot of work just to educate people on what dietitians actually do. Um, so I was ready for that opportunity and I, I actually still enjoy getting those types of referrals because it's for me it's an education opportunity but it's also a bit of a laugh. And who are the people that are referring patients to you? Is it other healthcare professionals? Is it um, prison officers for example? Who refers the yeah. patients to you? So I don't let an officer refer to me because they don't have any medical background um, and if I start doing that I think I'll get all sorts come through. Um, at the moment it's GPs predominantly so we have two full-time GPs within the prison and we have a few locums that pop in and out. Um, the, the GPs are the predominant ones. The nurses can refer to me and they've started to get much better at referring to me. So I'm accepting those referrals. I do get the odd task from a service called SMS, which is substance misuse service. So the SMS team tend to come across the malnourished patients quite frequently because a lot of them have been XIV drug users and not really prioritize nutrition. So I'm getting referrals from them as well. Um, where else do I get referrals from? Oh, chaplaincy as well. That's a bit of a weird one. Um, 
we tend to find chaplaincy is a bit of a hub within a prison environment. So there's all religions based in kind of one building and they they outsource a lot of support from chaplaincy. They're kind of the go-to for the man and then chaplaincy will contact dependent on that clinical need. And then obviously I triage it if it's appropriate. You mentioned earlier you're the only dietitian working in the prison. So do you sometimes feel lonely working in the role or do you have a support network around you? Do you go to other dietitians if you need to bounce ideas off them? How do you feel supported in your role? Um, it's a work in progress, if I'm honest with you. Um, I'm supposed to get clinical supervision. It's not really happened due to staff sickness and kind of COVID and all of that malarkey. But within the prison, I feel really supported from a kind of an emotional health, but also a a day to day how to conduct my service, how to how to just behave in that environment. My line manager is a speech and language therapist, and honestly, I can't rate her enough. She is incredible, and she's supported me all the way through that. What I've started recently is I've started to link in with two other dietitians that work in prisons um, in in England in English settings. And I'm using them as a bit of a support network and bouncing off ideas from them. So that's been really useful. So they they're certainly helping with that support. But you are right, it does it does get lonely and it does get a little bit, oh, you know, it'd be really nice to have somebody to have this conversation with. But the beauty of kind of my job is I'm only three days a week and I work two days a week in another trust. So actually, if there's something that pops into my mind, I know that I've always got that support available and I can always ask the dietitians in in the other trust or the other hospital that I work at. And they, they'll always provide any support that I need anyway. Yeah, we forgot to mention that actually, Fran, that you do um, you do two jobs part-time. Um, and I'm imagining it's not too dissimilar from a dietitian working in a, a setting outside of the hospital, like a hospice, for example, or in a charity. At times it can feel quite lonely, but it's about building that support network around you. And like you said, reaching out to other dietitians or seeing if there's any groups that you can join. Um, I wanted to go back to about your first sort of few days and weeks in the job. Did you ever find it an intimidating environment to work in? Because I think a lot of people, perhaps when they think of a prison, they, they might think um, of people being locked behind bars. And, and how, how do you feel and perceive that as a health professional? Was that your experience yeah. or not? So it can be intimidating. Don't get me wrong. It really can, especially when you walk past some of the gym goer men and they're about six foot five and they're, you know, they're really broad and you think, wow, I've got no chance. But actually, when you first start in a prison, you're on your guard all the time. And the more you're in that environment, the safer you begin to feel. I honestly can tell you, I genuinely feel safer within the prison walls than I have on ward settings. You know, when you've been on a ward and there's a dementia patient walking around and they're throwing things, or you've been in a clinic and you don't know who's in front of you. I know who's in front of me before they come in. I can read their profiles. I can't see what their crimes are. Um, and I could if I wanted to, but I choose not to. But if they're a risk to females, for example, it will say that on their profile. So I won't offer them a face-to-face. -face. I'll do it via a telephone appointment. Or if it's a do not see alone type profile um, notice, then I'll, I'll get a staff member in with me. So actually, I would say that 98% of the time, I feel absolutely more safe than I would in a normal setting, which that's is strange really, to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting to hear and, and very reassuring as well. Um, so you, you mentioned how um, some of the, you choose not to look at some of the patient's um, criminal background. Is that a choice that you've made? Are there other health professionals who would choose to look at that information? I think that's that's really interesting to hear. 
I think it's hit and miss. We've all got access to that information if we want it. But actually to remain professional, sometimes it's much easier to just not know what a man has done and just take them at face value. They're all people at the end of the day. They're all patients. And we've all done things in our lives that we we regret. Um, they've obviously just been prosecuted for it. And some of the, the things are, are worse than you would ever imagine. But it's best not to know. And I would say that probably 80% of our healthcare team don't know what men have done. And there's just the odd, the odd handful that probably do. Um, but it's personal preference. Mm, no, thank you for sharing that. So in terms of what a typical day of work looks like for you, can you chat us through how um, your clinics run and the kinds of patients you typically see? Yeah. Um, so a prison day can be very different dependent on kind of what the regime is that day. So a regime is kind of like how a day runs in a prison. So if the regime runs well, you get all of your clinic slots and they're all full and they all turn up. But nine times out of 10, the staffing issues and it doesn't always run to plan. If it runs to plan, my clinics are between nine and 12 in the morning and then four and half, uh, two and half past four in the afternoon. Um, the time in between is limited. So we can't see any men because they do something called roll call, which is like a head count to make sure that everybody is accounted for. So you can't see anybody between lunch, which provides a long lunch, but also a lot of admin time. But that's that's a great way to link in with the MDT or to triage referrals or to talk to the GP if you've got any concerns. Um, so that would be a typical day for me. The types of patients that I would see at the moment, the, pre the predominant caseload is diabetes and weight management. Um, I'd say that maybe that makes for about 80% of my caseload and then 20% is nutrition support, varying degrees. I get the odd um, kidney patient. I get the odd um, creon optimization. I get the odd high output stoma all thrown in there. Um, I've got a couple of oncology patients at the moment. So it's, it's huge variety. No, no day is the same. Yeah, I always think that's a difficult question to ask people. Um, but that gives us a really nice taste of the different sorts of um, patients that you're treating. Do you find that your patients tend to engage well with your dietetic input? Yeah, I'd say the majority of the time, you know, if they're in a position to turn up to my appointment, it means they're ready to make changes. And actually, I would say that I have more compliance within a prison environment than I've had in an external environment because they have the time to dedicate to the advice that you give them and they've turned up. So they want that appointment. So absolutely. Yep, they do. They engage very well. What about if you're prescribing special diets to patients? Because I'm thinking with nutrition support, for example, you typically recommend that patients fortify their meals and they go out and buy certain high energy, high protein ingredients. Obviously, in a prison setting, they're limited with the food that's on, uh, provided to them. So how do you go about managing your recommendations and ensuring that they're realistic and achievable? Going back to this wonderful SMART goal that we always talk yeah. about. <laughs> Um, I think it depends on the severity of kind of that man's weight loss or whether they've already a low BMI. So obviously we we do supplement drinks. Um, at the moment, we're kind of Abbott Nutrition jumping between those. But from a food first perspective, it can be really difficult. It can because you're asking men to buy things on their canteen list and they might turn around to you and say, I don't have anybody sending me any money, so I, I can't buy extra cheese or I can't buy extra extra eggs or I can't buy extra dried milk powder. Um, that can be hard. You can't, you've got to remember your limitations. You can't be manipulated by some of the men that will tell you that they have things when they don't have things. So you have to have a bit of a general rule of thumb. 
from a nutrition support perspective, I can get food first implemented via the kitchens, but I'll only do it for a certain period of time so that men know that that's not a way of getting extras all the time. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, because I guess once you make one rule for somebody, if that information filters through, it could become an expectation. And it does. It absolutely travels like wildfire. As soon as you put somebody on a special diet, you have about 20 messages the next day that everybody else wants a special diet. So that can be really difficult to manage. Just going back to what you said about the men having money that they can spend in the canteen, can you explain a bit more about how that works? Because I'm assuming that they get their general three meals a day provided can yeah, they then yeah. buy extra snacks and things? How does it work? Yeah, yeah. So as law, they get three meals a day provided. Um, so the kitchen budget is £2.02 two per day per man, which is really small. So they get their three meals, they get puddings, um, and they get drinks included in with that. On top of their meals, they get the option of a canteen list, like we mentioned. Now, a canteen list is independently run, and every single prison has one, and the list changes every single week. So they can buy toiletries, they can buy fruit and veg, they can buy chocolate, sweets, crisps, you name it. It's on the canteen list, and they can buy it. The money thing is a bit strange. So dependent on whether a prisoner is on remand, which means that they're awaiting sentencing and they're innocent until proven guilty, or whether they've been sentenced will also differ on how much they're allowed to spend on their canteen list. Um, and also, if, you've not, if you're not working within a prison or if you're not getting money sent in, you're also limited because you won't be able to buy anything on your canteen. But you should see some of the canteen lists, Harriet, I tell you. There's, you can't even make some of it up. You know, like four jars of Nutella a week, 20 bags of crisps, 18 chocolate bars. There's no limit on what they can buy if they've got the money. Well, that's very interesting because I was going to ask you about weight management because you mentioned that most of your patients are diabetes or weight management. And I was, I think a lot of people have this image of, in their head of prison food of, a, a, you know, sort of Oliver Twist style gruel and not very much, um, not large portions or anything. But from what you say, it sounds like actually if people do have some disposable income within the prison setting, they can get their hands on sort of high energy dense foods. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and even from the pre-select menu that they wouldn't need any money for, they still get five meal options each for each meal. So there are healthy options available at every meal. There are very unhealthy options available at each meal. There's certainly never a lack of food in, in a prison environment. I want to ask you more about the prison food, but just before I come on to that, um, you mentioned that some men work in the prison. Is that a choice that they make themselves? Yeah. Yeah. So a man will apply for a job within a prison if they want one. So we have men that work in education. We have men that work up in chaplaincy. We have men that work in the kitchens. The kitchen is pretty much run by the prisoners rather than external staff. Um, and then the wages depend on kind of the skill set. So the wages are never very much. It's about two pounds a day um, for your kind of your average job within the prison. But they use that to spend that on their canteen. Interesting. And what about exercise? Is that a, a required um, part of their daily routine or is that optional as well? Yeah, no, that's required. They don't have to go. I mean, the doors are open for exercise and they can choose whether to go for it. But they get at the moment, they get one session a week in the gym um, and they're hoping to increase that. Now, COVID regulations and restrictions are kind of easing. They get 45 minutes worth of exercise yard time as well. Um, and then they rotate that around the house blocks so that none of the house blocks mix. So they're only exercising with those on their wing for 40, 45 minutes. 
Another wing split according to severity of the crime. How are they? Not not necessarily. So we've got a wing for what we call macosos, which are men convicted of sexual offences. We've got a wing for lifers, which are men that are going to be serving at least 30 years plus. Um, and then the rest of them are, are pretty mixed. So we have a military military wing for ex-army. We have a, 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 a special needs type wing for vulnerable men. Um, we have a, a parent wing, which is quite nice for the new dads. So they get to have a little bit more contact with the newborn babies and they get to see them over Skype and stuff. So it, it's the wings are very tailored to kind of specific needs, but also within that, they're making sure that they're keeping gangs apart and they're being clever about how they house people. It's so fascinating to hear about from an outside perspective because you just don't think about these things, do you? Unless you're no, in no. that environment. Yeah, and I don't think I even thought about it until I was a couple of months into the environment. So in terms of your record keeping and things, is that an internal system in the prison? Because in the NHS, obviously, they have their own record system. So how do you keep yeah. your own records? Yeah, so we all use the same system. Most prisons use it. It's called System 1, um, but it's also used by external GP practices in, in England and Wales. So it's quite a well-known system, and we just free type and document it on there. It's actually, it's really nice. <laughs> Much better than any handwritten notes. Yeah, saves a lot of time, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So going back to what's probably the burning question for a lot of people listening, prison food. So in your opinion, from what you've seen, is, is the prison food nice? Does it look appetizing? Mm, I would say that if I was a prisoner, I wouldn't be happy but I would be able to make do and I would be able to meet my nutritional requirements via the food. You have to be aware that it's all catered en masse. It's all catered to a budget and actually health doesn't always come into the, the concern. Um, I think our manager in the kitchen, he's very kind of carbohydrate orientated. So at most meals there's pasta chips and bread rolls available. And really it's just what's been ingrained into them over the years I wouldn't say it's healthy. I, w I would say that, you know, you'd have to work hard to achieve health and that makes my job difficult, but it's not impossible. And there are, there are ways to do it. You just know, you just have to know what to pick. Can you give us an example of a typical day, dinner, for example, what sort, you said there'd be about five different meals available. What sorts of things yeah. would, would be available to them? Yeah. So at lunchtime, they'll have a cold option. So it'll be a sandwich or a salad box. So it'll be three different types of sandwiches. Um, chicken mayo is a favorite or tuna and sweet corn, those types of things. Or a salad box, which you'll, you'll all quite like this. Their version of a salad box is something like a sausage roll with salad with a bread roll. So it wouldn't necessarily be my idea of a salad box um, because you, you're kind of double carving it. But most of the salad boxes are something quite random. Um, there was a, a pork pie salad box the other day. There's quiche salad boxes. Really, what it is, is, is a small meal with a salad and a bread roll. I like the marketing there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what about prisoners who have um, special dietary needs, for example, religious, cultural, you know, vegetarian, vegan, halal? Do they cater for those needs? Yeah, absolutely. So all the religious ones come via chaplaincy. I try and avoid those. Um, veganism is a bit of an upcoming trend within the prison. Um, at the moment, I think we've got about 20 men within the prison. There's 1,800 in the prison for context. We've got about 20 men that are pursuing a vegan diet. 
So we give them a completely special diet and a completely separate diet for that. Um, but there's soon to be a bit of a pilot study for a nutrition project where they're going to introduce a vegan option on the pre-select menu. So all men will then get that as an option, which will be brilliant and certainly increase variety and increase fruit and veg intake, I'm hoping. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, especially as veganism and plant-based eating becomes more popular. Um, potentially more expensive, though, I imagine. Yes, yes. There's always pros and cons to everything, isn't there? But it certainly will be a bit more expensive. And also, we've got a bit of a challenge where, because these new options are coming on, we're introducing nuts for vegans. And previously, the kitchens have been nut-free environments. So for anybody with allergies, that's now an added risk factor and another problem to deal with as a dietitian. Yeah, keeping you on your toes, for sure. Sure are, sure are. <laughs> I was going to ask you about food refusal. Is that something that you ever see people going on food strike? And if so, do you have any involvement in that? Yeah, um, it doesn't happen that much, to be honest. And normally, it's a prison-related issue rather than a healthcare one where you can't really do much to solve it. But in our food refusal policy, it states that a healthcare professional, and I, I tend to make that me, but not always if I'm off, um, a healthcare professional needs to intervene at 72 hours. And then at that point, we need to talk to the man to try and find out what the reason is for that food refusal um, and whether there's anything that we can do to facilitate them coming off that and weaning back onto food. Um, obviously, in severe cases that end up becoming refeeding risks, I'm I'm then heavily involved to discuss that with GPs and kind of that weaning back in and doing it safely. But if I'm honest with you, food refusals don't tend to sit well in a prison environment because the men do it for a few days. They realize they're not going to get what they want and then they stop doing it. So it's quite normal to hear that someone's on a food refusal and then two or three days later, they're not anymore. So I don't get involved unless it's been a significant period of time. Otherwise, you'd be there all day. Yeah, and I, I guess if they do get to a really severe stage, is there a point when they would be admitted to a hospital? Yeah, yeah. And I've not experienced this personally, but the dietitian that I've linked in with at um, HMP Waylands down south, she's had an incident recently where somebody was blue-lighted to hospital. And the biggest problem with that is that you have to assess capacity. So our nurses will go out and do daily observations, check ketone levels, check blood sugars, all of that. Um, and they'll they'll kind of link in. But if the patient has the capacity to make that decision, that's their decision to make until it gets to the point where they lack that and then we can intervene. But it's also really hard because the nurses go and do these daily obs and you read them and you think, actually, that man seems to be doing far too well to be on day 14 of a food refusal. And then you ring up the officers on the wing and you find out that actually he's still receiving his canteen list and he still is eating. He's just not picking food up from the servery. So they don't see it, but but he is. So loads of challenges. Interesting. Never a dull day, I'm sure. Sure isn't. What about during COVID? Did the, well, in normal times, do the prisoners, are they allowed to eat together? And what happened during COVID? So there's still ongoing restrictions with COVID where the food, they go up to the survey, they get the food and they take it back to their room and they eat it on their own. Prior to COVID, obviously I wasn't working there, so I'm not entirely sure, but there are tables and chairs within the wings. And I do think it was more of a communal type eating habit. And it would be really nice to go back to that. But at the moment with ongoing random outbreaks across certain wings and having to isolate the men, it's not, it's not worth the risk. Yeah, I was going to ask you about COVID, whether it has um, infiltrated into the prison walls, and it sounds like it has. Has it yeah, been yeah. 
ongoing issue for you? Um, not so much. We tend to get random pockets of it where it tends to be a staff member has come in unknowingly with COVID, spread it to a few of the lads on the wing that they work with, and then it's kind of jumped between cell to cell. But as soon as we manage to pick up that actually there's this house, this block, where there's an outbreak, we can then just isolate them. And it, it's really horrible for the men, you know, to be behind their doors for 23 and a half hours a day um, during those isolation periods. But it's it's a really easy and effective way of stopping it from spreading and kind of getting those cases back low um, and non-existent again. Yeah, I can't imagine how that must be because I know people that have had to self-isolate at home struggle enough as it is, let alone being locked in a cell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the cells are tiny as well. If you ever get the opportunity to go around a prison, I'd really encourage it because it would put you off committing any crimes, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, perhaps you can share with us, Fran, um, a memorable patient that you've helped and, and how your dietetic input has helped them to um, better manage their condition or make an improvement, obviously anonymously. But is there an example you'd yeah. like to share? Yeah, um, I would probably say that there was a, a chap that I least expected to take on any of my advice. You know, when you meet someone and you think, hmm, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. And that's horrible to say, but we all come across patients like that. And he was a, he came in, I gave him first line IBS advice. He was a little bit erratic, jumping about the place, a little bit of ADHD. Um, and I thought, right, I'll book you in again for eight weeks and we're going to be in exactly the same situation. Anyway, bless his heart. He came back in eight weeks later. He'd done the most detailed food diary. He'd taken on board literally everything that I had said. And his bowels had gone from opening nine times a day to three times a day. And he was thanking me and he was saying that I've improved the quality of his life. And when you come across things like that, especially when you're not expecting them, you just think, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing what I do. This is why I love my job. So I think that he was probably my favourite one recently. Amazing. I can see you glowing when you talk about that story. <laughs> so it's obviously really, you know, touched you and it's lovely to hear. Yeah. So that leads me nicely onto my next question, which is what do you most enjoy about working as a prison dietitian? Um, I would say, and this is going to be repetitive throughout, is just that no day is the same in a prison. And that's just glorious. You don't know what you're going to turn up to. You know, I could go in one minute thinking that I'm going to have a really rubbish day and that I've got eight patients back to back all with the same thing. And what if I repeat myself? And actually, every single lad is a real character. They all bring something new to the table. And the banter is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, they, they treat you as a professional, but they also they treat you as a bit of a mate and they appreciate the fact that you're working in a difficult environment because not everybody wants to work in that environment and they know that. So I'd say that kind of, that is, that is the joy of the day, just meeting the people. Yeah. Brilliant. And it's so nice to hear some of the stories that you've shared with us today. That's not to gloss over the fact that I'm sure there are challenges working in your role. So what do you find the most challenging aspect of being a prison dietitian? Um, it's a really hard question to answer because some days you think, oh, this is really difficult and that's it. I hate it. What am I doing? And other days you can be in exactly the same situation and think, oh, this is really solvable. Not a problem at all. So I'd say probably the most challenging thing at the moment is triaging the referrals and making them appropriate. And the accessibility to the men 
with healthcare is a real challenge because they think it's as easy as messaging in constantly. Can I have an appointment? Can I have an appointment? Can I have an appointment? Until we kind of crack. And sometimes you get to a point where you think, oh my goodness, you've asked me 20 times. It's still not appropriate. You send them letters and that can be really hard because you think, I know you're desperate for my help, but it's really not clinically indicated. So when you simply message in, is there sort yeah. of an internal prison system where they can request directly to see you? How does it yeah. work? Yeah, so they can send in something called an app. So they can send it, it's, it's basically a message that they can send in on their laptops and they can send it in to anybody. So whether it be kitchens or healthcare or pharmacy. And the idea is it's supposed to be a bit of a, send in an app, I would like to request a GP appointment for help with my bad leg, something like that, a bit vague, but you can triage them, you can add them to a waiting list. What it sometimes ends up becoming is a bit of a, I've had a rubbish day and I'm going to use my app to vent at people and they can just end up messaging random things or they can send them to the wrong place. Or sometimes, and it sounds horrible, but it's it's quite often true where you receive an app and a man can't read or write. So you're trying to triage it, but you've got no idea what they say. And it can be really sad when you receive stuff like that. Um, but yeah, all the men get options to message pretty much everybody within the prison to get access to services. So I must ask then, the, the people that can't read or write, would you then go to speak to them directly or would someone go and clarify so that they don't miss out on the treatment? Yeah, so we have some some uh, men within the prison called peer mentors, which again have applied for that job. And they're kind of your very well-behaved prisoners. And they'll, if we receive messages like that, where you can tell somebody can't read and write and they need support with with putting in an application, then the peer mentor will go over to them and they'll show them how to do it and they'll help them with it. It's exactly the same if you give them any sort of referral film forms to fill out or anything like that. The peer mentor will always support them with that, which is lovely. Great, thank you for sharing that. And just as we, we come to the end of the podcast, I wanted to ask if you're aware of any sort of ongoing research into nutrition interventions in prison settings. Appreciate it. So you know not, yeah. not many roles so keen to hear yeah so at the moment there's a pilot study and i want to say it's oxford brooks that are running it but don't quote me on that and they're introducing healthier foods within a prison and that's kind of bringing in that vegan option as well as a bit of a pilot to help out and really to see whether it helps with behavior change they're very behavior change orientated rather than kind of clinical outcomes um, so we'll wait and see what that does. But if I'm honest, there's not enough research within a prison environment. It really is very poor for what it, what it needs to be. Um, I'm soon to be doing some research. Haven't quite decided or narrowed down on it yet, but I'm going to do my master's dissertation on just um, at the moment, nutritional awareness. And see, I told you I didn't know what I was doing it on yet, didn't I? Um, <laughs> more kind of attitudes towards nutrition and getting the men's opinion and seeing how much they know and their knowledge and their background just to see where I can take my service and whether I need to do anything more educational. Yeah, that would be interesting. And, and maybe also collecting attitudes from fellow staff because you, Absolutely. Said, you seem to get quite a lot of inappropriate referrals. So that would be interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think really I need to shout a little bit more about what dietitians do. Um, which is easier said than done when you're part-time, but I think we're all a bit guilty of it when we fall into a bit of a routine. Definitely. The to-do list is always too long, isn't it? It sure um, is. 
that reminds me just one more question that I'm going to squeeze in do you get any opportunities to do any health promotion talks in the prison environment because I imagine that's an ideal setting for you to be talking about healthy eating and things yeah you think it is but actually trying to narrow down a booking for a room to talk about health is a near on impossible task in a prison um, at the moment, I've not done any. I'm hoping to set up weight management groups from the beginning of October. Um, but with COVID restrictions, they kept being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. I've linked in with, we've got a health promotion justice lead. So they're prison side rather than healthcare side. And I've linked in with them recently who are hopefully going to be spreading a bit more awareness and linking in on key days um, and doing health promotion awareness. But at the moment, work in progress. Well, hopefully next year for Dietitians Week, you'll be able to do something. Yes, that'd be brilliant. Absolutely. So Fran, we always finish up with our podcast episodes by doing a short quick fire round. So first question to you is, what would you say is your greatest achievement, either professionally or personally? Um, so I'm a crazy cat lady. So my greatest achievement is having two cats, keeping them alive and giving them daily snuggles. Um, but from a professional capacity, actually, my biggest achievement was just qualifying in the first place. I really struggled with my mental health as a teenager and it really set me back. So actually being able to get into this position and to be confident enough now in my own ability to do it all by myself is a huge achievement. And not to mention working in one of the most challenging environments as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a, a huge congratulations to you. Um, and secondly, can you tell us about your favourite dietitian that you follow on Instagram at the moment? So this is a really mean question, Harriet, because you know that I love everybody on Instagram. <laughs> I'm, I've linked in with a lot of dietitians over the years and I can't really single somebody out. But I thought at the moment, if I was going to single anybody out, there's a lovely dietitian um, called Estelle. And on her handle, it's Estelle Dietitian. And I'm really enjoying her posts at the moment. It's a really nice mix of information, myth debunking and lots of pretty food pictures, which is one of the reasons I joined Instagram in the first place. Yeah, I came across Estelle's Instagram recently as well, and I can double vouch for that. It's a great account yeah. to follow. Not to mention your account, Fran, because we get Thank to see, you. Yeah, obviously. Get to see your, your cat. We get to see what you're eating. We get to see about your yeah. work. It's, um, it's great. Yeah. And then finally, if you were cast off to a desert island, what would you choose to be your last meal? So I think if anybody follows me on the gram, they will know the answer to this. It is anything with pasta, tomato pasta, pesto pasta, carbonara pasta. As long as there is pasta with some cheese, I'm there and I would be OK on a desert island for a short period of time. Carbohydrate loading. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say pizza, so I was a bit far off, but at least no, was that fun. was close. That would be a second choice. <laughs> I, I think I should have been born Italian. I think I think I was born into the wrong wrong location. Well, maybe that's a future career. Who knows? Yeah, Who knows? Well, thank you very much for your time today, Fran. Really appreciate you joining us in the Dietitian Cafe. Thank you for all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you found Fran's journey as a prison dietitian really interesting and, and quite inspiring to listen to as well. Our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>